You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, and Scene of the Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 39, Lisa Ziegert. It was 1992. It was early in the morning and some of the teachers at Agawam Middle School were becoming concerned. One of the most popular teacher's aides, bubbly, energetic, and warm Lisa Ziegert, hadn't shown up to work with her assigned special education students that morning at 7.50 a.m. The pretty young brunette was reliable and timely. She was never late, much less MIA. But on this Thursday, April 16th, Lisa was nowhere to be seen. The middle school secretary called Lisa's mom, Diane, who had no idea where Lisa was. Little did she know that, meanwhile, in downtown Agawam, a retail employee of Brittany's Card and Gift Shop had arrived to work in the family-owned business. This was a young woman named Sophia. Lisa Ziegert worked two jobs, as many educators need to do to make ends meet, and her second job, four nights a week, was as a clerk at Brittany's. Lisa and Sophia both worked at the store, and Lisa had shown up, as expected, the previous evening to relieve Sophia and start her evening shift, which was from 5 p.m. until closing. She was scheduled to work solo until 9 when she would lock up and go home. But on this Thursday morning, around 9 a.m., Sophia arrived to open the store and immediately went on high alert. Lisa's white Geostorm was parked in the lot right in front of the store, where she had parked it the night before, and Sophia knew that Lisa should have been at the school at that hour. Furthermore, the Brittany's open flag was still hanging outside the store. The lights were on, and the front door to the store was unlocked. The radio was playing pleasant music inside. It was as if the store was already open for the day, but no one was there. Sophia called Lisa's name a few times, but no one answered. She started to become very uneasy. She noted that the storage employee break room door at the back of the store was standing open, which it never was. And the screen door on the side of the store, which opened inwards and led to a steel door leading to the alley outside, was also open. Lisa's jacket, car keys, and purse were right there under the checkout counter where she usually stashed them when she was working, and her art drawings were still on the counter. This part of the story reminds me of the Pam Falcons case, which I covered in Season 1, Episode 11. Pam was abducted from the video store where she was the night clerk. Her husband found her cigarette still smoldering on the counter. He must have missed her by mere minutes. Unfortunately, Lisa Zeger was not missed until the following morning. More than 12 hours had elapsed before anyone realized that she was gone. Anyway, Sophia was totally spooked by the eerily empty store. 
She left, locking the front door behind her, and walked down the alley and checked the side door, which she found unlocked. This is the door to the internal screen door, which was open. That door was never used, so this just reinforced Sophia's fears. She ran to a restaurant across the street and asked the owner to call the police. He did at 9.17 a.m. Off-duty Agawam, Massachusetts, Police Department Officer Diamond was eating in the restaurant, so he walked over to Brittany's and looked around. Soon, on-duty Agawam police arrived and the investigation began. Joe O'Neill, the Brittany's store owner, arrived and told responding officers that Lisa Ziegert had been supposed to close down the store the evening before, but it did not appear that that had been done. Officer Diamond had Sophia called Lisa's parents' house, but they hadn't heard from her. Officers were dispatched to Agawa Middle School where they learned that Lisa had not arrived at work. Officer George O'Keefe went to Lisa's home address, apartment V3, Belden Court on Silver Street, and received no answer to his knock at the door. He asked if any of the neighbors had seen Lisa. The neighbor across the hall said she hadn't seen Lisa that morning, and her car wasn't there either. Police tracked down Lisa's roommate, who, along with Sophia, was able to remember what Lisa had been wearing when she was last seen. Police put out an APB for Lisa Ziegert, brown hair, brown eyes, last seen wearing a white blouse with an embroidered collar, a light blue denim peasant skirt, and brown suede shoes. She always wore her high school class ring, a charm bracelet, and contact lenses. Meanwhile, Sophia called Lisa's sister Lynn and her mom Diane, who goes by D, at their respective workplaces. Neither had seen her, and they were alarmed to hear that she still hadn't turned up. They drove over to the store after failing to find Lisa at her apartment. Police would not allow them inside. They returned to the family home where police began to question them. Based on her personal possessions and vehicle being found at Brittany's, it was pretty clear to investigating officers that Lisa had been on duty at the store when something happened to her. Initially, police wondered whether she could just have left or gone off with someone. Field interviews with her concerned family and co-workers told them quickly that this was not an option. Police talked to Lisa's boss, Brittany's owner Joe O'Neill, who was shocked to learn that Lisa had apparently left mid-shift leaving the store open and unattended. He told them, and later told the media, that Lisa had worked for him for three years, and she was simply not the type of girl to just take off. Her father, George, said, quote, She would never do anything like this. She would have told us if she was going somewhere. Her roommate, Deanne Declos, had told the local paper, The Republican, quote, Lisa was not an irresponsible person. She wouldn't just leave and not take anything with her and she wouldn't just leave the store unlocked and not call anyone. Dee Ziegert said later that as soon as she saw the state of the store, with the side door hanging open, the lights on, and Lisa's things still there, she knew she would never see her daughter alive again. Lead investigator Lieutenant Robert Campbell of the Agawam PD, quoted in the Boston Globe, said, quote, The possibilities range from a walkaway to an abduction. Based on her history, the walking away from the store is not a high probability. Agawam police called in reinforcements from West Springfield, Massachusetts, as well as the Connecticut and Massachusetts State Police to assist in the search for Lisa. Police officers fanned out immediately to search the areas around the store on foot and using a state police chopper. They quickly scoured the shopping center area behind the buildings and in all the dumpsters. 
Department of Public Works employees were brought in to peruse drains and culverts. They searched the nearby Westfield River by boat. They canvassed nearby hotels and shops. Scent and cadaver dogs sniffed their way through the wooded areas near the store. There was nothing. By Friday, Lieutenant Campbell said, quote, We're treating it as a missing person. And by Saturday, headlines in the local papers broadcast, Local Woman Feared Abducted. Let's talk a little bit about Lisa. 24-year-old Lisa Zieger was the second of four children born to George and Diane Zieger. Her sister Lynn was only 15 months older, and the two were very close. They also had a brother, George, who was living in California, and a sister, Sharon, who was a senior at Agawam High. They were a very close family. Lisa was born on March 24, 1968, when the family lived in Holyoke, Massachusetts. They moved to Agawam in 1974. Lisa graduated from Agawam High in 1986 and then Westfield State College in 1990 with a degree in elementary education. In high school, she was a straight-A student and was inducted into the National Honor Society. While a student at Agawam, Lisa played the saxophone and flute in the Agawam Concert Band. She also performed as a drum majorette for the school's marching band for two years. She was a member of the school's literary magazine, The Unicorn, and worked on the student newspaper. She loved art, sketching constantly and even dabbling in oil painting. Her summer jobs were typical small-town ones, camp counselor and ice cream scooper. In 1992, Lisa no longer lived at home. As a young adult, at age 24, she wanted her own place. And in September 1991, she had moved into an apartment with her cousin and friend, Deanne Duclos. The Ziegert family home was nearby on Renwood Lane, and Lisa often went over there for dinner or to do her laundry, or even occasionally to crash overnight. And sometimes, after work, she went and hung out at her boyfriend Blair's place, visiting with him and her sister Lynn, who was his housemate. That was why, on the Wednesday night when Lisa was abducted from work, Deanne had not been alarmed when Lisa hadn't come home to their apartment. Deanne went to bed early, around 10, and assumed that Lisa would be home soon. The next morning, Thursday, when she woke up and saw that Lisa hadn't been home, she was worried to the point that she almost called Lisa's parents. But then, she thought that if Lisa had spent the night at Blair's, she might not be thrilled if her parents were told. Agawam police called Deanne at work around 10, asking if she knew where Lisa was. Of course, she didn't. Deanne went right to Brittany's and learned that all of Lisa's things were at the store, but she was gone. As I said, Lisa often spent time at her parents' home near her own. On the previous Monday night, just two days earlier, Lisa had gone to her parents to do her laundry and helped her younger sister Sharon try on her prom dress. Little did anyone know that Sharon would not be going to her prom. Instead, she would be at Lisa's funeral held the same day. That Monday night visit with her mom and sister would be the last time they would see her alive. Lisa had worked at Brittany's for three years, moving with the store when it changed locations. She also taught Sunday school to second graders at Sacred Heart Catholic Church, where her family was among the congregation weekly. Lisa was popular and beloved, described by friends as a quiet, sweet, friendly girl. Her family said she was well-adjusted and responsible. She loved kids, had been an avid babysitter in her teen years, and had always wanted to be a teacher. Her friend from sixth grade on, Kelly Fedora, said to the Boston Globe, quote, she was a really nice person. She wouldn't hurt a fly. 
I hate to harp on how wholesome Lisa was, but the case file notes about her even state that she had no traffic violations and no cavities. Basically, Lisa was a model young woman, which was why her abduction and murder was extra perplexing. As they were waiting anxiously for news, Lisa's older sister Lynn told the Boston Herald, quote, You don't expect something like this to happen to someone you know, and you damn sure don't expect it to happen to someone you love. She was my best friend as well as my sister. Lisa didn't have an enemy in the world, and she wasn't having any problems. She knows we all love her and are just waiting for her to walk through the door. Lisa had been dating her boyfriend, local boy Blair Masoya, for about a year and a half. Lisa's sister Lynn lived in a rental home with Blair and two other guys, and it was through Lynn that Lisa met Blair. Lisa generally spent weekend nights at Blair's place. She didn't like staying alone in her apartment, and Deanne, her roommate, was often away on weekends. Lisa's family loved Blair and thought the two were perfect for each other. Blair told the Springfield Republican about his girlfriend, quote, She was always happy. She didn't have an enemy in the world. But clearly, someone had it out for her. Brittany's card and gift shop was located at 353 Walnut Street Extension in downtown Agawam, Massachusetts. This is one of those large strip mile style shopping plazas that are ubiquitous throughout the Northeast. It was located on Route 147 and surrounded by J.W. Wimpy's Restaurant, Agawam Bowl, a barber shop, a guitar shop, a tanning salon, a nail salon, a carpet store, a dollar store, a dry cleaner, and the local office of a state senator, Linda McConian. Although Britney's was in this shopping plaza, it was a standalone building, a small shop unto itself. Nearby were more restaurants and bars. The area was considered the main commercial sector of Agawam, and it was bustling even at night. On the night Lisa disappeared, the bowling alley had league night going on with over 100 people in attendance. The carpet guy next door, James Dent, said he and Lisa had commiserated about all the cars parking in their lots to head over to the bowling alley or an eatery. In short, it was busy. Yet all these stores were canvassed and employees and patrons questioned as to whether they had seen anything. With all these adjacent businesses, with some such as the bowling place and restaurant open that evening, it was hard to fathom that no one had seen or heard a thing. Police collected descriptions of vehicles seen in the area, including a blue truck, but of course, those are a dime a dozen in western Massachusetts. Crime scene techs assisted by the FBI processed the store. I watched the police video from inside the store, clearly date-stamped April 16, 1992. It's eerie to see the location where Lisa was taken from. The retail showroom area of the store was in pristine condition, which was surprising because it was filled with breakables and tchotchkes. None of it looked touched. Police refused to comment publicly on what they found at the crime scene or whether there was any sign of violence. They removed two doors and a card rack from the store but would not address why. But now we know what they found in the store. There was a small stockroom slash office in the back of Brittany's. In the stockroom, crime scene investigators and responding police officers noted blood on an inflated snowman balloon, a large white envelope, a cardboard box, and the door jamb and also dripped on top of a small refrigerator. A fire extinguisher lay on its side, apparently having been either knocked over or maybe even from someone trying to use it as a weapon. A few cardboard boxes looked a little smushed, as if there had been weight on them. In the store itself, in the rear near the stockroom, was the rotating card rack the police had removed. 
It was still upright and filled with cards, but the rack itself had a small smear of blood on it. The crime scene video shows the rack with the blood smear and an Easter card on top of a box with a large brown blood splat on it, obscuring the E. It was an ominous sign of the Easter to come for the Ziegert family. The finding of the blood naturally ramped up the intensity of the investigation. Lisa's boss, Joe O'Neill, ruminated that perhaps someone had lured Lisa to the back of the store and attacked her there. He told the Springfield Republican, which I relied on heavily in researching this case, quote, Lisa was very trusting. He said it was commonplace for clerks to step out from behind the register to help customers, but he didn't think Lisa would have done so if she hadn't trusted the person. It was noted that there was a panic button under the checkout counter at Brittany's, and Lisa had not triggered it. Given the fact that the side door was found standing open and it was never used, police came to the conclusion that Lisa had been taken from the store that way and led to a waiting vehicle. The side door led to the alley between the shop and a pool hall. Brittany's owner Joe noted that nothing was missing from the register and told the media that there were no overt signs of a struggle other than the blood and upset items in the storeroom. This wasn't really correct. Later, it would be disclosed that there were signs of a struggle, but it's not clear whether Joe knew that since police removed the item that bore the evidence. This was the door to the stockroom. Kick and scruff marks were observed about a foot from the bottom of the interior side of the door, as though someone had kicked it during a struggle. One kick had gone right through the particle board door. Police went to Lisa's apartment to meet with Deanne, her roommate, and to look over Lisa's room for any clues. Deanne noticed that Lisa's key to their apartment was missing from the keychain that had been found with her things at Brittany's. Police knew she had to have had the key when she left for work at the store on the day she went missing because she locked the door behind her as she left. Where was the key? Well, it's never been found. Police removed the door lock from Deanne and Lisa's apartment and kept it at the station from that point forward. When a person came in to be interviewed, they would ask to see his keys and look to see if perhaps he had one that fit the lock. But Lisa's apartment key was the only thing missing from Brittany's, besides Lisa herself. The store wasn't robbed or ransacked, and the only evidence that anything had happened at all was the evidence in the stockroom, on the card rack, and the open door to the alley. Police lifted a latent print from the door to the stockroom and ran it through APHIS with no success. It wasn't a match to Lisa, Sophia, or Joe, and its source remained unknown. Police were able to narrow down the timing of Lisa's disappearance. On Wednesday the 15th, Lisa had gone to work at the middle school as usual. After work, she went home and ate an early dinner. Her roommate Deanne later found the dishes in the sink. She then went to Brittany's for her 5 o'clock shift, relieving Sophia at 5.07 p.m. During her shift around 5.30, her sister Lynn dropped by the store to hang out with Lisa. She was fine. She was in a good mood. She was talking about school, Lynn Ziegert told the Republican. There was no indication in Lisa's behavior of what was to come. Sometime between 7.30 and 7.38 p.m., a customer named Donna went into Brittany's to buy a birthday present. She told Detective Wayne Macy that the young woman who was the sole clerk, who must have been Lisa, was friendly and helpful. But as Donna was leaving, a man walked into the store who, she felt, didn't look as though he was the type to shop at Brittany's. She didn't expound on this, but described him as tall, slender, with dark hair and olive skin. Donna felt strange enough about the female clerk being alone in the store with this man that 
She stayed in her car for a time before driving off just to make sure nothing happened. It didn't, and she forgot about the whole thing until she heard about the young woman from Brittany's going missing. At 7.35 p.m., James Dent, the owner of the carpet store next door to the gift shop, made small talk with Lisa for five to ten minutes after he closed down his own store. She was alive and well at that time. At 8.21 p.m., Lisa rang up a family buying Easter gifts at the store. But by 9.05, another customer walked in, hoping to grab something quickly before the store closed. Finding no clerk there, the customer left and didn't tell anyone that the store was empty. That makes a 44-minute window in which Lisa vanished into the night. But no one heard screams or saw a woman being wrestled into a car. In the wee hours of the morning, though, several people noted the lights blazing from Brittany's, and although it was unusual, no one stopped in to inquire why the store was still open in the middle of the night. Employees leaving the Goodwill store at 2.30 a.m. saw it, and the Tan Saloon employee arriving at 5.30 a.m. saw it as well. In one heart-wrenching twist, it turned out that one police officer had been close to checking on Brittany's that night. He was on patrol late in the evening, past the time when the retail shops would normally have been closed around 3 a.m., when from his cruiser, he noted that the lights were all blazing in the store. They should have been off long before that time. He was about to go into the store to check it out when he received a radio call for a prisoner transport, which, as the on-duty officer, he had to handle. He chalked the store lights being on up to someone doing inventory given that there was still a car in the parking lot that was parked there regularly, Lisa's. Even if he had gone in, though, it was about six hours after the window in which we know that Lisa was abducted. It was almost certainly much, much too late to help her. On Saturday afternoon, with Lisa not having been seen or heard from since Wednesday, Lieutenant Campbell said at a news conference outside Agawam PD headquarters, quote, As of this morning, we have classified this as a kidnapping. We have ruled out a number of possibilities, and we feel she did not leave on her own. Agawam is a small town. The population in 1992 was just 26,000, and it had a very low crime rate. Random abductions of innocent young women did not happen. Police warned the public that robbery did not appear to have been a motive in the abduction. Nothing was stolen from Brittany's. Lisa had been the target, and it was looking more and more as though she had been taken by force from a public venue. Residents were scared, and female employees of the businesses near Brittany's started working in pairs and getting escorted to their cars. Amazingly, in one of the archived Berkshire Eagle sections containing an article about the confounding disappearance of Lisa Ziegert, there was also an article commemorating the 10th anniversary of the disappearance of another young woman from the area in remarkably similar circumstances. The article begins, quote, 10 years ago today, 18-year-old Lynn Burdick went to her part-time job at the Barefoot Peddler on the Mohawk Trail, never to be seen again. The Barefoot Peddler was a variety store at the corner of Central Shaft Road and the Mohawk Trail in Florida, an hour's drive from Agawam. And like Lisa, Lynn had been working there as a clerk for three years. Almost exactly 10 years before Lisa, Lynn vanished from the store between about 8.15 and 8.40 p.m., leaving the door open and all the lights on. Other articles soon appeared comparing the two cases, which had undeniable parallels. No one wanted to think that they were looking at another decade-long missing persons case. 
Police said they did not believe Lisa's and Lynn's cases were related because they were 10 years apart. As an aside, in a couple of the articles, the recent disappearance of a Colleen Coughlin of Plymouth also received mention. Plymouth is nowhere near Western Mass, where Agawam and Florida are, but it isn't that often that two young women vanish within days of each other in Massachusetts. I'll be circling back to Colleen's case later, so remember her name. On Easter Sunday morning, April 19th, Lieutenant Campbell said, quote, I honestly believe there's a chance we could find her alive. I suspect he was hopeful that some sicko had just kidnapped Lisa and was holding her somewhere. As undesirable as that would be, of course, it would be infinitely preferential to the alternative. But tragically, that wasn't going to happen. At 2.04 p.m. on Easter Sunday, Agawam police dispatch got a call from a guy named George. George and his family had just finished a big Easter dinner and were sitting around his mother-in-law's house. Bored and full, George decided to go for a walk around the property. He strolled down onto a hill and from there could see in a clearing within a wooded area the body of a woman. Lisa's body lay on the muddy ground next to a stream face up. Her arms were over her head, her hands still clenched in fists. Her bloody blouse was ripped in half, with half still covering her left breast and the right half under her body. Her bra had been cut open. She was naked from the waist down, save her black, neat-length socks pulled up and her brown suede boots. George turned right back around and went into the house, took the phone into the bathroom so as not to alarm the family, and called the police. Responding officers confirmed that what George saw lying on the ground was a dead woman. Police and emergency vehicles descended on the area. They cordoned off a large area of woods, and a police chopper snapped aerial photographs of the whole scene from above. As the district attorney later said at a press conference, quote, The scene was photographed and processed by personnel from the Massachusetts State Police, including its Crime Scene Services Section and Crime Laboratory, Agawam Police Department, and the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Meanwhile, about 75 curiosity seekers gathered to take in the scene attracted by all the emergency vehicles. Bodies of dead women lying in muddy, wooded areas are virtually unheard of in the Agawam area. Everyone pretty much knew that it must be Lisa Ziegert. Lisa was found in a clearing in a wooded area accessed by mud tracks made by utility vehicles. This from the police report, quote, The body was about 200 yards behind 1178 Suffield in the woods, a wooded area with dirt access roads cutting through. The body was located in a grassy area next to a small hill, where the dirt road off Suffield intersected with another from left. Now, 1178 Suffield Road is behind an Agawam industrial park near a residential area off Route 75 near the Connecticut border. This was less than four miles from Brittany's gift shop. This from the Republican, quote, The site is large and wooded. There are many dirt paths running through the area, and it is often used by people riding dirt bikes and horsemen from nearby Crowley's stables because the area is swampy and was drenched with rain from the past few days Police had a difficult time reaching the body, calling in the fire department to assist. As a result, it was generally felt that whoever had abducted and killed Lisa must be a local, or at least someone who regularly frequented the Agawam area. The place where Lisa was found was way off the beaten path. I don't believe we have a drifter here, one resident said to the Republican. I've lived here all my life, and I've never even known about that field. 
I think whoever left her here had to know the area. You need a four-wheel drive to get through the mud, and there are a lot of different entrances to this place, said Anthony Provost, who lived near the store from which she disappeared. Indeed, Lisa was found, quote, a significant distance from any roadway, according to State Police Sergeant Daniel Grabowski. This piece of information that Lisa was found in a location that only a local would know would inform the investigation throughout its duration. This was not a spot that was stumbled upon by some out-of-towner. Someone familiar with the area had dumped her there. As I said, as soon as detectives saw the body, they knew who it must be. The body still wore the blouse Lisa had been described as wearing, as well as all her jewelry, including the distinctive charm bracelet the family had mentioned, and the body had long brown hair. The denim skirt and underwear were on the ground about 25 feet away, tucked under the corner of a wooden pallet. They were blood-stained, filthy, and torn. The information about the pallet was held back for use in suspect interviews. The items of Lisa's clothing were deliberately pinned down under the corner of the pallet, as if someone wanted them to be found and associated with the nearby corpse. About 15 law enforcement officers comprising Agawam detectives, state police, and FBI agents painstakingly scoured the dump site for clues. They left Lisa's body lying in place for nearly 12 hours as the ME's forensic experts conducted tests. The police report indicates Lisa's body was looked at using a poly light and a chemical I can't pronounce to see if there were latent fingerprints on her. At autopsy, the body was also dusted with magnetic powder to see if prints were visible. She was finally removed by the medical examiner at 2.30 a.m. Investigators continued their work illuminating the entire area with generator-powered floodlights. It was a muddy mess. It had sleeted and rained for three days, and investigators were up to their ankles in mud. Video of the dump site shows a brushy, muddy clearing littered with beer cans, old pallets, and the like. But investigators were able to determine that this was the place where Lisa had been killed. Evidence of a scuffle lay about. Buttons scattered on the ground matched Lisa's ripped-open blouse and the skirt. The jean skirt had been ripped apart, not along the seams, leading investigators to surmise the man who did this was quite large and strong. A delicate bow on the ground that appeared to have been ripped off Lisa's clothing was in stark contrast with the brute force of the killer. Blood, vomit, and feces were lying near the body, and they were collected. The bloody clothes were collected. A Bud Light can, dirt, and grass samples were collected. The can was so faded it was believed to be old and not related, but it was collected nonetheless. Tire impressions were taken from the scene and the mud track leading to Suffield Street. It was noted that four types of tires were visible. It was believed that Lisa's killer had definitely used a vehicle to transport her to this desolate location, but it was one frequented by off-roaders joyriding, so tire tracks were abundant. I found an article in one of the local papers reporting that Dr. Henry Lee, at the time the director of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Science Lab in Meriden, assisted with the collection of forensic evidence at both crime scenes in this case. Agawam is very near the Connecticut border, so his involvement makes sense. Of course, Dr. Lee went on to become one of the foremost forensic experts in the nation. I recently attended his crime con in Vegas, and at age 80 plus, he remains charming, candid, and hilarious. Detective Macy later said that he was tasked with the dreadful assignment of going to the Ziegert's home and relaying the news. 
I remember ringing the bell and thinking, what is the easiest way to say dead? And there was no easy way, he said. But he didn't need to say it. Dee took one look at him, and she knew. Lisa's murder was a chilling wake-up call to Agawam residents. One friend of the family, Lee Marquise, who was among those watching as police removed Lisa's body, said to the Boston Globe, quote, I can't believe that this has happened here. Things like this don't happen here. The biggest crime we have is auto theft. We never have murders. It makes me not want to go out anywhere. I am going to be watching my back. Most of the small community felt the same way. Police processed more than 300 new applications for permits authorizing women to carry mace or pepper spray in the month after Lisa was found. A police officer friend of Lisa's and a buddy offered free self-defense classes to women in the wake of her murder. People were on edge, scared to go out at night. The safe, bucolic small town was no longer devoid of violence and danger. Agawam, everyone said, was changed forever. The Republican reported that in the days following the murder, the Ziegert family would watch television news accounts of the killing and think, this is not happening. Dee Ziegert said, it's not denial, it's disbelief. They finally stopped watching the news, stopped reading the papers. They were numb. Your head knows, but your body mercifully gives you a very numb feeling, Dee said. Hopefully, the family chose not to read Lisa's autopsy report. Lisa's body was taken to Springfield Municipal Hospital at 2.30 on the morning of April 20th and prepared for autopsy. At the time, Agawam police refused to address the state of Lisa's body or how she died. One law enforcement source told the Boston Herald she was, quote, pretty well beat up, but that didn't begin to describe it. Word began to seep out that Lisa had been mutilated, and eventually police officials had to make public statements dispelling those rumors, which weren't technically true, but it was true that she had been stabbed over and over again. All police would say was that she had been killed by a single knife wound to the throat. While the pathologist, Dr. Lauren Mednick, found that indeed, there was one sharp force injury that likely killed Lisa. There was a lot more violence evidenced on her body. Here are the injuries she suffered. There were three horizontal, linear, shallow knife wounds in the area of Lisa's Adam's apple. Police notes reveal, quote, These wounds were one quarter inch deep and may have been inflicted to get the victim out of the card shop. They ranged from one and a quarter inch in length to three and a quarter inches in length. Two knife slashes were on Lisa's left clavicle. These were more than five inches long and deep, exposing the bone. There was one plunging knife wound to the back of Lisa's neck, which had been inflicted when her head was bent down by force. This one-inch deep stab wound impacted the fourth cervical vertebrae of Lisa's spine, but would not have rendered her incapacitated. The stab wound lined up with a cut through Lisa's blouse. The likely fatal wound was beneath Lisa's Adam's apple, extending into the chest cavity. It was a slice about four inches long and two inches deep. The wound reflected that the sharp edge of the blade was moving to the right. Animals had gotten to the body in this area of the wound, so Lisa's trachea was exposed. Lisa also had a gaping stab wound in her lower left thigh that was two inches long and one and a half inches deep. This made a total of eight stab wounds, not including numerous defensive wounds to both her hands. Police theorized that perhaps the killer had stabbed Lisa in the knee as she tried to knee him in the privates. Lisa also had three marks on one of her wrists that were unidentifiable. I saw photos of Lisa's body and the wounds on her throat and the back of her neck. 
I have to say, what was done to this young woman was horrific, as you can hear. The white blouse she was wearing, shown as an exhibit in court decades later, was nearly all brown. It was so soaked with blood. A piece of what appeared to be medical tape was taken from Lisa's hair. This was a two-inch wide tape that the suspect was believed to have brought along with him, and possibly used to wrap around Lisa's head, possibly covering her mouth and eyes. He came prepared. Dr. Mednick surmised that the blade that had been used on Lisa was a single-edge hunting knife or buck knife. He noted that while there was no visible sign of injury to the vaginal or anal areas, sperm was detected in vaginal swabs and fecal matter was detected inside the vagina. Lisa had been raped before she died, both vaginally and anally. The medical examiner believed that Lisa died very soon after she was abducted. He suspected that she might have suffered a punch to the face, but he couldn't be certain because, unfortunately, significant insect and animal predation had already occurred. I'm not going to specify what had happened, but once you read the report, you can see why rumors about mutilation circulated. Lisa no longer looked like Lisa. Various experts were consulted to confirm that the post-mortem damage to Lisa's body was caused by animals and not intentional acts by her killer. The FBI later considered whether the several shallowish stab wounds to Lisa could have been indicative of picarism, the paraphilia in which the offender derives sexual satisfaction from shallow stabbing. But the analysts believed instead they were attempts by the offender to keep Lisa under control, silence her, and make her compliant. In fact, the analysts weren't certain that the offender had actually intended to kill Lisa. It was possible that he had slashed her throat to keep her silent, and she had died because the cut was too deep. Foreign body hairs and some kind of fibers were found on Lisa's body. Testing of the fibers led to the possibility that she had been placed on or wrapped up in a plastic tarp. An FBI analysis of the crime suggested that perhaps the offender had used a tarp in his car to lay on the ground to commit the sexual assault rather than doing it in the mud. Lisa's family did not view her body at the morgue. She was officially identified by her fingerprints. While she was still missing, police had searched her room and collected her address book as well as some personal items that they believed they could get her prints off, such as a music box. They also collected some letters and an undeveloped roll of film. The town as a whole was devastated. Per the Herald, quote, the heart has been ripped out of this town, said Ron Hendricks, who lived near the Ziegert family home on Renwood Lane. This whole neighborhood is a wreck. A wake for Lisa took place at Colonial Funeral Home. A crowd of 1,000 people, by some estimates, lined up outside, patiently waiting in the cold rain to pay their respects. A service was held at Sacred Heart Church in Feeding Hills. The deacon, who spoke, evoked terrible sadness because he knew Lisa personally, calling her his band daughter because she was such good friends with his own daughter, and he had accompanied their school band on several trips. And Lisa was active at the church, teaching catechism to kids. Sadly, many of the mourners were adorned in the white ribbons that the church pastor had handed out at Easter services, a symbol of hope in the quest for Lisa, who was still missing. Her body was found as most parishioners, still wearing their ribbons, were wrapping up their Easter brunches. Law enforcement officers videotaped the crowd at the funeral in case Lisa's killer was among them. A $5,000 reward for information was announced by the Agawam mayor from contributions by local residents. 
The mayor also authorized $20,000 to fund the Ziegert investigation and two extra patrol cars to help assuage residents' concerns about safety. Once Lisa was found and the case was no longer a missing persons investigation but a homicide, law enforcement went into overdrive to bring Lisa's killer to justice. Agawam police were joined by the FBI and state police with the Hampton County District Attorney's Office overseeing things. Lead investigator Wayne Macy recalled of those early days, quote, We would work from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. and go home, take a shower and shave, and come back again. We did this week after week. Sixteen investigators basically worked around the clock on the Ziegert homicide. Per the Republican, all eight members of the Agawam Police Detective Bureau were being paired off with an investigator from the State Police Crime Prevention and Control Unit, who work under the supervision of the district attorney. Anytime an Agawam detective interviews someone or checks out a lead, he is accompanied by a CPAC member, a supervisor said. The Springfield office of the FBI also provided forensics expertise. More overtime was approved, first $35,000, then $55,000. None of it was enough. Police interviewed hundreds of people. They sought out everyone who was registered at Agawam Bowl's Wednesday night league. They checked nearby restaurant, pool hall, and bar receipts and contacted customers who were at those locations on that fateful night. They dug into Lisa's life, knowing, of course, that her killer was statistically likely to be someone she knew. They asked her family about a job application in her purse. They said she had been planning on leaving the card shop. She was kind of uncomfortable around Joe, and it was time to move on. They contacted everyone in Lisa's address book. They interviewed all the teachers, custodial staff, and administrators at her school. They checked into the bars Lisa liked to go to with her friends, where they said she loved to dance but was not a big drinker. They got the names of all the men Lisa had dated all the way back to junior high. They got the names of the guys in the high school band with Lisa. Everyone Lisa was close to reported that she had issues with none of these men. But one of her friends did report something small about one of them. I'm not going to name him, but this was a guy whom Lisa had dated who she broke it off with. Her friends said Lisa believed he had keyed her car in anger. But this was a relatively inconsequential thing, and Lisa and this guy hadn't been serious. Her friends and family emphasized that there was no question of any vengeful spurned lover or shameful secrets. Her relationship with Blair was rock solid, and Lisa's family and friends all loved him. There were no issues with neighbors, fellow teachers, nothing. Police looked into Joe, Lisa's boss, for obvious reasons, plus the fact that one or two people reported that he had seemed overly interested in her. Joe remained on the suspect list, but was nowhere near the top. He was just another name in a long list of people somehow connected to Lisa. But there were a couple of things that police uncovered that made it into the case file. Ed Borgatti, a retired Agawam police officer who owned a family restaurant near Brittany's, told investigators of a regular customer, a white male who drove a red Chevy Lumina, who was fixated on Lisa and would visit her at the store often. Lisa had also had a conversation with a fellow teacher at Agawam Middle School about six weeks before her death, about a man who came into Brittany's on several occasions but never bought anything. Lisa said he made her nervous. Another friend of Lisa's since sixth grade, Kim, told investigators that several times, including the week before she was killed, Lisa had acted paranoid and told Kim she felt like someone was watching her. At these moments, when Kim looked around, she saw no one. But it did not escape police that it was probable that whoever took Lisa had been watching the store waiting for his opportunity. 
The front of the store was all glass, and with the lights on inside, a watcher from the dark parking lot could see the young woman alone in the store as clear as day. On the Thursday before Lisa died, her friend Kim hung out with Lisa at Brittany's, and they talked about what Lisa would do if anyone ever tried to rob the shop. Lisa said she would run into the back room and lock the door. As I said, when police questioned Lisa's family, they were not able to name anyone with a motive to harm Lisa. And investigators weren't certain whether her abductor was someone she knew or a stranger. They had no suspects. Hampton County DA Bill Bennett told The Globe, quote, The investigation is intensive. We have everyone available on the case. But it's difficult because we have no witness and a lot of circumstantial evidence. There was one intriguing lead, though. Lisa was a regular gym-goer, a member of a women's health club called Healthy Habits in downtown Agawam in the same shopping area as Brittany's. A worker there contacted police and gave them a tip about a man who seemed to always come in when Lisa was there. Jennifer Collins told the Republican that this guy would come in around 3 p.m. when Lisa was there and buy a frozen yogurt at the juice bar and hang around for 15 to 20 minutes, ogling the women and particularly watching Lisa. The gym manager told the media that men were not really permitted in the all-female workout location, so it seems to me that this guy would stand out like a sore thumb, and clearly he did. As the Republican put it, quote, the man never approached any of the women and was not intimidating, but employees thought it was unusual that he would hang around an all-women's health club. I would agree. And as it turns out, some of the women were intimidated by the man. One woman who wished to remain anonymous told the Boston Herald, quote, he had a very perverted attitude, looking at the women very curiously. He was a pervert. I was scared of him. All this next bit is from the Boston Herald. Quote, One Healthy Habits Club member said she was shown mugshots of men who resembled the man she saw at the juice bar, but she did not recognize any of them. She described the man as 5 feet 10 inches tall, in his mid-30s, with a beer belly, and wavy, dirty, light brown hair with some gray in it. She said he wore soiled work clothes, and she was surprised to see him drive away in a fancy red sports car. Another member of the club who also requested anonymity said, quote, a lot of people who work out there said they've seen him. She added that female club employees had complained about him to the management because he was spending too much time at a club meant for women only. But it wasn't just that this creep was loitering in a women's only space. Even more significantly, the employee, Jennifer Collins, told the Republican, quote, we haven't seen him since April 14th, and we thought that was weird because Lisa was taken the next day. After that, the guy didn't come around anymore. Needless to say, police were super interested in tracking down creepy ladies' gym guy. And finally, a week after Lisa went missing and the guy was a no-show at the gym, he came back in. Police nabbed him and interviewed him at the station and searched his Mercury Cougar. Afterwards, they issued a statement that he had an alibi and was not a suspect. His name was not released, and I don't know what the deal was with him, but he sounds like a giant perv, and police were absolutely right to check him out. This from the Republican, quote, It was not clear why the man frequented the all-women's health club, but investigators said they have no knowledge that he was staring at the women or that he was intimidating or threatening in any way. As far as I know, he was eating yogurt, an investigator said. But that wasn't the end of the investigative avenues involving Healthy Habits Jim. This is weird. A gym membership card from Healthy Habits was found on the ground off Suffield Street at the dump site. This seemed too strange to be a coincidence. 
Police contacted the member whose expired card it was, and she told them that the last time she saw her card, it was in her car. She hadn't been to the gym since February 1992. The whole thing was odd, and it's not clear that it was ever resolved. Then there was a false alarm that investigators hoped might lead them to the killer, but didn't. In the height of the panic over Lisa's murder, the owner of an Agawam car wash, Frank Pignatare, called police and said that he had found some suspicious items discarded in the wash bay trash bin at his car wash. These were a piece of car floor or trunk carpeting and a men's t-shirt with red stains on it. The wash bay looked as though someone had washed a very muddy car, just as it was thought that the one that drove Lisa to the dump site would have to be. Of course, all these things appeared suspicious and the police were right to check them out. But after stories about the items found at the car wash appeared in the papers, the man who had discarded the suspicious items called police and explained them. A statement was issued that the whole incident was unrelated to the Ziegert case, another dead end. The police investigation into Lisa's case caused waves in Agawam because the small town was fixated on the crime, police weren't disclosing much of anything about the trajectory of the investigation, and word of what was being done and who they were talking to flew around the town. One early target of rumor, speculation, and gossip was a 26-year-old named Ed Borgatti Jr. Ed was the roommate of Blair Masoya, Lisa's serious boyfriend, and Lisa's sister Lynn's, and he was also a friend of Lisa and her family. In fact, he was a pallbearer at her funeral. When the public got word that police had interviewed Ed Jr. twice and that he was working that night in his family's restaurant, E.B.'s Specialty Chicken, just 30 yards from where Lisa was abducted, people started to talk. It didn't matter that the police were talking to pretty much everyone. Ed Jr. bore the brunt of public suspicion. It didn't help that police had taken Ed Jr.'s Jeep to compare the tires to see if they matched tire tracks left at the site where Lisa was found. Pretty soon, everyone in town knew that Ed Borgatti Jr. had been arrested and charged in Lisa's murder after a love triangle gone wrong. Except none of that was true. Agawam Mayor Chris Johnson tried to dispel the rumors, saying on a local radio show, quote, It's unfortunate, but you're not going to stop the rumor mills. The Borgattis are very good members of our community, and they don't deserve this. Blair Masoya, Lisa's boyfriend, said the rumors about his best friend were totally ridiculous. But he said, quote, I guess that's what happens in a small town when police are so tight-lipped. Ed's father, Ed Sr., was a former Agawam detective, which only added to the salaciousness of the rumors. Local whispers soon arose accusing the police department of covering up a crime committed by the son of one of its own. Hampton County District Attorney William Bennett was finally forced to issue the following statement, quote, A widespread story that the son of a well-known Agawam resident has been arrested or implicated in the crime has no basis in fact and should be ignored. The Ziegert family staunchly stood by Ed, whom they knew very well and fully trusted. And he had a solid alibi. He was working in his family's restaurant with other people until nearly 10 p.m. He didn't do it, but his name still comes up in the context of the Ziegert case because of unfounded local gossip. As for Blair, Lisa's boyfriend, he had an alibi. He had visited his mom at her house from 8.30 to just after 9 on the night when Lisa disappeared during that exact time frame. After that, he went to CVS to buy contact lens solution and he still had the receipt. I was surprised to see, though, that he wasn't considered totally cleared. He took a polygraph in 1993 and the results were inconclusive, so he remained on the back burner. 
Then, on May 8th, the police asked for the public's help in identifying a vehicle. A witness had contacted police and reported that she had seen a car turning onto the dirt road off Suffield Street in Agawam. She believed it was the night Lisa was abducted. She worked near the card shop and was driving home on Route 75. She was stopped at a stop sign at the intersection of Route 75 and Adams Street when she saw the vehicle enter the field. The car was seen in the same approximate time period in which Lisa disappeared, 9.15 p.m. The witness described it as a dark-colored, possibly red or blue, late-model, full-size utility vehicle like a Bronco or Blazer, with oversized tires and a rear-mounted spare, possibly with red lower trim. The witness who had seen the vehicle had been reluctant to come forward until some time had passed, finally making up her mind to contact police. Agawam Police Lieutenant Robert Campbell told the Republican that he was definitely intrigued by this potentially crucial lead, as it fit with the time frame of Lisa being abducted and driven the few miles to where she was found. And police had already surmised that they were likely looking for a utility vehicle, as the woods area was muddy and swampy, and they had found some tire tracks that looked like they were from a larger four-wheel drive car. But Campbell warned that the area was sometimes frequented by local kids partying, so the driver of the vehicle might just be a potential witness. But if he was, why wouldn't he have come forward? Police asked for tips to be called in if people knew this car or knew of one that had dropped out of sight or been sold since the murder. 180 tips were called in in two days' time. There were things like, my neighbor has been washing his Bronco all day, or my cousin stopped driving his Bronco after Lisa's murder, and so on. They all had to be checked out. I will say that police put a lot of stock into this witness's account, and the suspect being the driver of a Bronco or Blazer pretty much became a fact in the investigation and subsumed countless hours of legwork. Although this Bronco lead was far from concrete, there were two other witnesses who saw men who I think could very well have been the killer. Remember I said that a family was shopping in the store for Easter gifts around 8.21 p.m. on Wednesday night, and they were the last ones to see Lisa. The customer who entered the store at 9.05 found no one there. Well, the police interviewed the father of this shopping family, a guy named Ken, who just happened to be a Springfield police officer. He and his kids, wife, and wife's friend had had dinner at Wimpy's and then went into Brittany's. But in typical male fashion, Ken got bored as his family was browsing, and he left and sat in his car outside. While he was waiting for the rest of the gang, he saw a man who gave him pause. This guy was pacing on the sidewalk across the street from Brittany's, and he was acting strange. He kept looking at the store, looking around, and looking at Ken. He paced back and forth and walked into the parking lot and back out. Ken thought the guy was suspicious and assumed he was planning on breaking into a car. At one point, the guy stood next to a small, dark car, and then he walked out of sight. Ken reported that he was tall, with a lean to medium build, clean-shaven, dark hair, and wearing an olive green army-style jacket. Police showed Ken a photo array of eight men, and there was one whom he thought could be the guy, but he had been in jail on the night of the attack, it turned out. A composite sketch was made of the man Officer Ken saw. Separately, a man named Dave saw the police activity at Brittany's and stopped in and talked to investigators. He was the owner of the sports shop across from the store. He said that he was on his way into his store around 10 p.m. when he saw a car parked crookedly outside Brittany's with a young white man sitting behind the wheel. The vehicle was a red or maroon late model Camaro. 
Note that if this sighting was of the killer, he had to have had Lisa in the store for quite a while, since the customer came in at nine and heard noises. Another witness, the man who owned the dry cleaner directly across from Brittany's, saw a white man entering the shop between 8.30 and 8.45. This could make perfect sense. If the killer was watching the store and observed Ken and his family leave after 8.21 p.m., he might have seized the opportunity to get Lisa alone. But despite these possible sightings, no one saw Lisa being abducted at the store. No one saw a vehicle rushing from the scene. No one saw a body being dumped in the woods. As we've seen in so many cases, Lisa's killer had luck on his side. Time passed. In May, the owner of Brittany's, Joe, decided to close the store permanently. No one wanted to shop there anymore, and employees told the media that Joe was racked with guilt over Lisa's murder, even though, of course, it wasn't his fault. From the Republican, quote, A close friend of the O'Neill family said Ziegert's killing has taken a great toll on Joe emotionally. There is a pall over that location, and he is closing up for good. By the end of May, things had slowed significantly. The Republican reported that calls to police hotlines slowed to a trickle. Police staffing of the investigative team was reduced, and the Agawam detectives went back to normal working hours instead of double shifts on the case. State police checked in less and less frequently. Police Lieutenant Robert Campbell, who was directing the investigation, and Detective Wayne K. Macy continued to work the case full-time. Quote, in the beginning of the case, we were responding to 50 leads a day. Now it's about two to three a day, Campbell told the Republican. It's not something you can go home and just forget about, he said. It's a hideous type of crime, and it can be haunting after a while. Four months after the murder, police had spent $50,000 in overtime pay to those working the case. And Police Chief Stanley J. Chemilski was still saying, quote, I firmly believe we are going to get the guy. He was right, but it would take years. In January 1993, police investigators worked the only real piece of concrete evidence they had, the tire tracks found at the scene. The predominant ones they had casted were thought to be made by Cooper Tires, and they tracked down the two places in the area that sold them, as well as one over the Connecticut border. While police were in the process of contacting all the tire customers, the man who owned the vehicle that had left the tracks at the scene finally came forward. He had been out in the area mudding with friends and had actually gotten stuck. This avenue of the investigation came to a screeching halt. Remember the witness who had reported that she saw a Bronco or Blazer turning into the dirt road leading to Lisa's body? There were at least three suspects who drove Broncos who were looked at carefully. One of these was a suspect who was arrested for stalking a woman in East Hartford, Connecticut, and who was in possession of a large knife consistent with the one used on Lisa. And this is crazy. His ex-girlfriend reported that after the Lisa Ziegert murder, this guy's Bronco was extremely muddy and had new damage to the dashboard. In August 1992, he traded it in. And right after the murder, he started acting strangely and attended Lisa's funeral. This was super odd as he did not know Lisa, his girlfriend said. Police tracked down this vehicle, which had been sold a number of times and was eventually shipped to Russia. Interpol had to get involved to try to find it. They did, but the wheelbase was not a match. They tracked another vehicle all the way to Florida, only to not have it be the one they were seeking. Another lead also failed to pan out. In November 1992, a woman came in and reported that her ex-boyfriend might have something to do with Lisa's death. 
She had recently gotten a restraining order against him. She said he was from Agawam, drove a Bronco, and she had seen blood and a long, curly, brown hair in it. At the time of the murder, he started acting weird and asking if she would visit him in jail. And she knew that he knew where Brittany's and healthy habits were. This woman took a polygraph exam and passed. Her boyfriend's name was added to the growing list of men who could have killed Lisa. All in all, investigators looked at hundreds of Broncos and Blazers as part of this avenue of the investigation, but it all went nowhere. Let's talk about a few suspects. There were some men who were on the suspect list because they committed similar crimes in the area. For example, Michael Kelly admitted to murdering Colleen Coughlin in April 1992 and Deborah Lavangi in June 1992. Colleen was buried in Kelly's backyard in Pembroke. Deborah was found in a box that had his bloody print on it. The box was found at a warehouse off Route 3A in North Plymouth, where Kelly worked as a sign painter. And this is horrifying. Kelly had just been released on parole the previous October after serving 12 years at the Bridgewater Treatment Center for the Sexually Dangerous, that's actually what it was called, where he was committed for multiple rapes he committed in 1976 and 1977. Investigators in the Lisa Ziegert case seized on Kelly as a potential suspect. He didn't live near Agawam, but he clearly checked some boxes. In October 1992, the files I got, which were redacted, indicated an unnamed suspect was in police crosshairs. The man was ordered by a judge to submit blood, saliva, and hair samples to Lisa Ziegert case investigators, and the evidence would be presented to a grand jury considering the case. The court documents were sealed, so the public didn't know much, and all police would say was that they were not ready to make an arrest. But it was intriguing that the man was termed a suspect. I'm not sure whether this was Kelly, but in any event, Kelly had nothing to do with Lisa Ziegert. He may very well have been eliminated by comparing his samples to the RFLP analysis that had been conducted. Police also pulled in a guy who they discovered had sent four $500 money orders to the Ziegert family anonymously for unknown reasons. He told the cops he had visited Lisa's grave several times, and his brother owned one of the businesses near Brittany's. He took a polygraph and deception was indicated. He said he may have seen a Bronco near the dump site on the night Lisa was killed as he drove by on the way to the bowling alley. Another weirdo on the list. There were so many like this, and there were so many false alarms. Police kept some information close to the vest so they could flush out the real killer under questioning. But some false confessors and accusers managed to complicate things anyway. For example, one woman called in a tip that she suspected her boyfriend and was afraid for her life. Police went so far as to obtain a hotel room for her safety when it came out that she was lying and was just trying to set up her boyfriend. Several other women also called in tips about their partners, all of which had to be run down, and many of which, unfortunately, ended up being false tips designed to get back at or set up the male subjects. This kind of thing kept investigators very, very busy, and, crucially, it helped contribute to a similar but very real lead being buried. One man who was brought in and questioned got investigators' hopes up when the key on his keyring fit into the lock from Lisa's apartment door. Remember, her key was missing. Was this the guy? No, it wasn't. His apartment building was operated by the same management company as Lisa's, and all the door locks were of the same type. Another false alarm. 
In August 1992, the crime lab had been able to come up with a rudimentary RFLP profile from the physical evidence samples in Lisa's case. This was a precursor to modern DNA profiles and is much less sophisticated. Nevertheless, it did permit comparison of samples for the purpose of elimination of suspects. On the first anniversary of Lisa's abduction, both Lieutenant Campbell and Detective Macy expressed extreme frustration at their own inability to solve the case. Macy said he sometimes sat in his car outside Brittany's, hoping that some idea would come to him. But Campbell knew the odds were against them after a year's time. People are looking for a guy with a foot growing out of his head. This is someone who has blended right back into society. It's like a chameleon, he told the Republican. Campbell and Macy were not the only ones who found Lisa's case to be baffling. Unsolved Mysteries, the famous TV show, covered the case in October 1993. The show had responded to a request from Agawam and Hampton County authorities to give national attention to the head-scratching homicide. The producer of the show, Tim Rogan, said the network agreed to take on the Ziegert case because, quote, it's a heinous crime and it appears to be a situation where it hit a community unaccustomed to crime. That made it stand out even more. It appears that it has interrupted the innocence of the community. Statistics given by the show at the time were that of 85 cases Unsolved Mysteries had covered like Lisa's, in which there was no suspect identified, approximately a dozen had been solved after tipsters seeing the broadcast called Investigators. Investigators in the Ziegert case were so hopeful that the show would produce results that Detective Macy flew to Burbank to be on hand at the call center for when tips came in after the show. 33 operators were in the studio to answer the phones, which rang with several hundred calls from viewers. There were enough credible tips, 212 of them, that Agawam police placed some additional detectives on the case temporarily to run down the new leads. Captain Campbell, formerly lieutenant, said that about one-third of the leads were either junk or were rehashing old information, but some actually pointed them to out-of-state crimes that bore similarities to Lisa's. The investigators had agreed to reveal some new information through the show in hopes of increasing interest in the segment and perhaps stirring some memories. The new info was as follows. The customer who had come into the empty store at 9.05 p.m. was a woman named Rita. She had browsed around the store for about 10 minutes, and she felt it was very unsettling that no one was present. The store was clearly open for business with the door unlocked and the lights on. Rita told investigators that she heard a noise coming from the back room. She thought she heard a banging noise that could have been a door. She waited to see if anyone came out, but no one did. It's crazy to think what might have happened if Rita had decided to go knock on the stockroom door. Anyway, these noises heard by Rita mean that Lisa and her attacker were still in the back room of the store. This wasn't a drastic change in the timeline, but it meant that Lisa and her killer had not left the store yet by 9.15 or so when Rita finally gave up and left. What was going on in the back room? Well, this led directly to some other new information that was revealed on the show. Police saw evident marks on the very lower part of the stockroom door that indicated that the door had been violently kicked a few times. They surmised that Lisa had been horizontal on the floor and had kicked the door, possibly trying to scramble away or defend herself while she was being attacked on the ground. Somehow, her attacker kept her mostly silent while waiting for Rita to leave. The final piece of information was that the female witness who had seen the utility vehicle entering the woods around 9.15 p.m. believed that the driver was a man, 
but also that there were several people in the back seat. Of course, this initially raised the question of whether Lisa had been taken by more than one abductor. But it also became a highly questionable sighting based on the new timeline. If Lisa and her attacker were still in Brittany's at 9.15ish when Rita left, they could not possibly have been entering the woods at 9.15, nearly four miles away, as asserted by the witness. In December 1993, it was announced that the FBI was assisting in Lisa's case, particularly focusing on the forensic work. It didn't help. The case was stalled. Agawam's only unsolved murder. They went through several periodic reviews over the years, starting with a full review by the state police and Detective Macy in 1995. Around the fourth anniversary of Lisa's murder, Agawam detectives Sergeant Wayne Macy and Anthony Malone got together with the FBI's investigative support unit to prepare a psychological profile of the man who killed Lisa. The Massachusetts investigators went to Quantico, where they spent three days presenting the evidence about the two crime scenes for 10 federal agents, who then came up with a profile. This from the Republican, quote, They presented evidence from the crime scene, mapped where it was found, showed hundreds of crime scene photographs, and illustrated other evidence in the case, including Ziegert's background, Macy said. Using the completed profile, they discussed possible suspects with the agents. I reviewed the FBI reports about the profile they put together of the unknown offender. Here's what it says. This was an organized sexual homicide in that the offender came prepared with medical tape and whatever else he used. But he had not managed to bind Lisa's hands, and he had not pre-selected the dump site, showing that he was not sophisticated and was immature. The crime was sexually motivated and Lisa was the target. The offender had pre-selected her and made some preparations. He was mission-oriented and would not be deterred. But the numerous non-fatal stab wounds showed that he was not in full control of his victim, and this might be his first such crime. The offender was familiar with both abduction and disposal site and probably frequented businesses near Britney's. He was fond of knives. That one seems like a no-brainer. The offender killed the victim to avoid detection. He was married or in a sexual relationship. He was a lone white male, mid to late 20s, not impulsive, confident with knives, blends in the area, and seemed like a normal member of society. He tries to appear macho and has, quote, hypermasculine interests, such as hunting and weapons. He has no remorse for the crime and follows news reports about it. He was not likely to visit the gravesite. He was likely a manual laborer with normal daytime working hours, a verbal IQ on the low side, and an erratic but unremarkable work history. He was probably bad with personal financial management. He had a probable criminal record of outside sex crimes, such as indecent exposure, voyeurism, or groping, as well as nuisance crimes. The offender probably lived or worked closer to the card shop than the dump site. He probably went into the card shop once or twice in the past and watched the victim from the outside. The anal rape indicated a hatred of women and or aggressive or even abusive attitude toward a particular woman in the offender's life. He might have frequented sex workers to experiment with sexually dominant behaviors. And this one is really interesting. The ferocity and degrading nature of the crime in which he stabbed the victim in the back of the neck as he forced her head down shows that he probably did not know Lisa in any meaningful capacity. He had zero feelings of empathy toward her. The discarding of the body in public illustrates that he lacked forensic awareness and viewed the body as a used-up vehicle for his aggression. 
The offender has a psychopathic personality and likely suffered from depression and or had a major life event in the months before the incident. He might have sought treatment and or medication to treat this, and he might be a heavy drinker. After the murder, he might have taken his own life. A consulting forensic pathologist added that the slash marks to Lisa's collarbone area were possibly inflicted as the offender raped her from behind, holding the knife near her throat. The FBI profile also says that the missing key is believed to be an anomaly. It did not fit with the offender profile for him to have taken it with the intention of entering her apartment. If he wanted a trophy, there was plenty of jewelry on her. In other words, they couldn't explain it. This is the end of part one of the Lisa Ziegert case. Please continue to listen to part two, which is available right now.